This is the Future of Cyber Risk podcast, brought to you by Team Cymru. I'm your host, David Monier, fellow at Team Cymru. Let's jump right into today's episode. Hey, everyone, and thanks for listening to another episode of the Future of Cyber Risk podcast. Today, I'm speaking with Kojo Hogan, Director of Information Security, Government's Risk and Compliance at Chainalysis. Thanks for chatting with me today, Kojo. Yeah, you got it. Thanks for having me on. Happy to. So, can first, tell us some about yourself, uh, your background. How did you get to where you're at today? Sure. So, I originally started in accounting many, many years ago, and then uh, I kind of dabbled in operations and finance after that. And a big turning point in my career was when I was doing uh, operational accounting for um, IT business services. That I began to really get interested in information security, IT risk. Um, well, just and not even IT risk, but just generally information technology and in that show. So I had the chance to you know, talk to some leaders in the organization. And I just said, hey, if I ever wanted to make a transition at this point in my career, what would you suggest? And uh, you know, one guy was very, very helpful. He said, the best thing to do is to understand where you want to go and where you are now and then create a roadmap. So Understanding that, I, I went to a technical institute in New York City, and I had took a sabbatical from work, and I was able to just go to um, you know different technical classes. I already had my bachelor's and my master's uh, in business, but I didn't have very much in um, technology. Mm-hmm. And so, in between going to school, I was also uh, you know doing labs at home. I was applying all my you know universal knowledge how the business runs and um you know really getting that function of technology and so after about i would say about a year and a half of that um, i did about five or six certifications and uh, i mean i just kept up with doing a lot of um exercises i got a job at a japanese bank here in uh, new york city and it was interesting because i originally signed up that it was a uh, information security engineering program and it was an information risk governance program and me having the most wide uh, technical skill set without it being directly applicable to any um, type of business. Uh, me and the, the CISO at the time said, I want to teach you about risk because in order for a good risk manager or a good risk professional, you should have some kind of engineering background. So my day was split between engineering and uh, risk. Sure. And interesting. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, I meet a lot of practitioners. I've been practicing security practitioner for more than 25 years myself. I meet a lot of folks who come from kind of the technical angle and end up in these positions. You might be the first, accounting is technical in my opinion, by the way, but it's maybe not right. the IT technical, but it is for 100% technical. But you might be the first person who I've seen come from administrative technical background into information technology. And, you know, it's interesting. I would bet you have a lot of the, what's the right word, like assessment mindset already right. from having uh, accounting backgrounds. It's probably, I won't say easier, but it's probably a different process for you to determine what's risky and what's not for your mindset, because you're not seeing it as a, what all's involved to get there. You're thinking of, well, what happens once you are there? Kind of the, like I said, the uh, accounting view. That's interesting. Yeah. And, and the other thing that accounting lends to it and always being sure that your methodology is sound mm-hmm. and going backwards and forwards with it. So, you know, if I have this risk, can I get back to likelihood and uh, and impact? And then, you know, if I have to strengthen my controls, this, does this make sense in these different areas? So, you know, what's accounting, when you do your calculations, you have to, what's true is always true. So, you know, depending right. on where you take it out. 
your methodology has to be sound. So that really led to the uh, risk assessment and risk analysis mindset. Yeah, I bet. And to some degree, and you know, what's the saying? Something like uh, ignorance is bliss or something like that. On right. one hand, not having your mindset be hung up on all the kind of technical nuance, there's probably a bunch of fear that you don't have because you don't really have those things to worry about because like you don't get hung up on worrying about those parts because to you, you're like you said, you're trusting the method, you're trusting the model. And so you don't have to necessarily get hung up on those kind of nuanced stuff. You can just trust that they're there. And in your case, because you didn't really have to come up through that path. So your right. your view of it is is more, what is it, macro, I guess. Well, no, not not actually. So the trust uh, has to be there, but I approach it from a different uh, angle. Uh-huh. So, you know, when you establish the trust, then you can say I can validate my model if necessary. But the, actually what the accounting really lends then to was being able to talk to just general business people. Because when you prepare um, your accounting models, your, uh, your financial models, you know, you're not giving it to people who are accounting professionals all the time. You're not giving it to uh, a finance professional all the time, which you're giving it to the business manager and he's wondering, do I have enough money to get to the end of the year? Did I bring in enough money to get to the mm-hmm. end of the year? So being able to talk to that in a very, very general term and associated directly to that person's experience is where the the real uh, key skill set was. Uh, yeah. Accounting, we have this saying, trust but verify. So mm-hmm. yeah, we look at the numbers, but did you verify this upwards, down, sideways? Sure. <laughs> So yeah, sure. Yeah, interesting. Like I said, I think you might be the first person I've met who came into managing risk from the accounting side. But like I see it's a hand in glove fit. That's some obvious capability there. So given that you have this kind of a different path that you got here, tell us, you know, what's a day to day look like uh, for you being a security leader there? Yeah. So at Chain Analysis, so I, I handle um, three major pillars, and that's uh, risk analysis and you know uh, technical risk. I handle customer assurance and I handle IT governance from a risk and compliance point of view. So my day is generally as a junior leader or a senior leader, however you you know decide that you want um, that can be spent, is yeah, I have a team of people who got like got work to make out work to me. We have several initiatives that we need to uh, get off the ground, you know, in response to risk and compliance. And then we also have exploratory things where we say, okay, this makes sense because of the industry that we're in and these are the initiatives that we're going to take on for the year. So it's about making sure that the, the ship is going, uh, that any fires that come up are being put out. So I like the general functionality of engineering teams. So I do start with a daily stand-up to, you know, say, okay, this is what we dealt with yesterday. Is there anything going on? Is there any new projects that are coming down? What do we need to do to get them done? Uh, how are the projects in process? And it's like, and then I go from that place of, you know, working directly with my team, um, having our daily stand up to making sure that, um, you know, if anything, you know, from the operational side, you know, responding to customer requests or doing our vendor due diligence or, you know, even just uh, assisting other people with their risk on process and the risk analysis and operational side to, you know, the projects to my long term strategy and um, spinning up the department. So every single day is different. And then you have to leave room for fires, right? So. There's always something that, you know, something is going on where I have to, you know, be directly involved and leave that room to talk. So I would say it's about 50%. It could be 50% to 80% operational and projects are, um, you know, anywhere from 20 to 25% managerial. And it could be anywhere from uh, not the 30 to 35%, you know, working on the long-term projects. And so, and those kind of strategies equal to 100%, but um, that's, you know, the basic math. 
Sure. Okay. So in out of those tasks, which of those things excite you the most? You know, it's, I'm the type of person that loves to explore new things. And so, you know, doing risk management for a blockchain company, it gives me the opportunity to create a lot of processes that don't necessarily exist because mm-hmm. blockchain is still this ephemeral thing that, you know, governments, uh, uh, politicians haven't really figured out, you know, how they want to regulate it. They know it needs to be regulated. So, you know, looking at those types of risks, what is coming down. So, you know, being, building up these frameworks to, you know, take, Analysis from where it's at, from a risk and a compliance standpoint, and saying, okay, looking at the future, looking at where sales wants to go with it, and say, okay, these are the next best steps that we can keep in alignment. So, this is going to sound very corny. So, I'm going to put on my nerd hat, but to boldly go when no one has gone before. You know, sure. Sure. Yeah, sure. <laughs> you guys got to forgive me for that one. <laughs> no, that's that's all right. I, I, I don't think anybody who uh, who's a regular listener would be offended by that. Maybe you should have said something from Yoda instead would be their only complaint. So, but it's very interesting. You know, you mentioned the fact that blockchain is still so new. Um, I'm curious, like when you're staffing your team, you know, like, because right. we think about, we think about what skill sets today are critical, what skill sets today are important for security practitioners. But I think that you have a, you're dealing with a different animal. So from your perspective, and obviously including the blockchain bias, you know, what would you say are the most critical skills for practitioners as you see it and, you know, think that will give them talent for the next five years, let's say? Yeah, I think that's a great question. And the biggest thing that I've found is adaptability. Okay. Oh, when you deal with blockchain and it's changing, like every single day, something new, right? Something new is news for blockchain every single day. Like, you know, as, 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 as you know, respect to like, you know, if you go to work at a bank, you know, the bank regulations, they don't change much from year to year, unless it's like something really crazy that happened that, you know, they want to put some, some, some controls around. So for me, it's about adaptability and understanding that you can't get married to the process. And working at the Japanese bank, um, they have this thing called continuous improvement. And my very first leader in uh, information security, we would literally come to an agreement that something was done or this is the way we were going to do it one day. And the next day you would look at it and say, ah, that was good yesterday. Thank you for doing it. Let's look at it from these lens because something happens. Something would happen. And so... That is the biggest thing is adaptability. And so for me, I tend to look for a broader skill set than a traditionalist that just did IT engineering or just engineering. Like, you know, the perfect type of person that I look for is a person that has done something really wild. Like, I, I, I don't know, like maybe they did fashion, maybe they did PR. And then maybe they decided that, you know, they wanted to do risk or do IT. And then they, you know, kind of went up this very weird path where they, did PMP first, and then they became an engineer, and then they when it got into information security, because that lends to an adaptability where you're not really married specifically to the process, but you really want a good outcome, a really good work product. So uh, those are the types of skills. That's the main skill set that I've seen that works really, really well. Especially when I taught this, I taught on um, GRC, Governance Risk and Compliance, for about nine months, and those were the students that I sort of do the best. Not necessarily the students who were very good coders or very good engineers, but the people who could really think and adapt to different situations. One of the biggest lessons I learned is that some of the problems that, that I run across is that people, they expect risk to be examined in a quiescent state. 
Meaning that, you know, in a lab, everything is, you know, set up and it's always, you know, at its most nominal point and nothing is really going on. But when you deal with the real world, it's very rarely like that. So being able to analyze, you know, your actual situation, what's going on inside of your actual realm of control or your scope or, or your operation scope really lends to a person saying, okay, yeah, this makes sense here. But today, this whole operating environment's changed and now the risk is slightly different or vastly different being able to pick up on that. Yeah, you know, it's interesting that you talk about adaptability being such a powerful skill to have. I have also noticed that people who have really strong, let's call it code-oriented or engineering-oriented backgrounds, they oftentimes don't adapt very well. I've noticed that they, you know, and I don't want to use words statistically, you know, but they more often than not present these kind of self-induced hang-ups over, you know, what they want in an outcome to be if it doesn't go that way, or they expected policy to work in some certain way as a control, and then it doesn't, somebody, you know, bests it somehow, and they get hung up on really like, well, how did that happen? And that couldn't be, and they start thinking in impossibilities, which is always a bad idea, right? So for, like, when you're going to hire people today, for when you're going to pick your team, how do you go about determining that like as an interview process? Like what kind of questions do you ask people that you use to kind of like tickle out their ability to to pivot like that? Yeah, sure. I think it's a great question. So I don't know if it's necessarily idiosyncratic to coders. I think it's idiosyncratic just to the mindset of the coders, right? So I think that there are some coders who want, you know, things to just exist. And then sometimes you run into like, I, I work with some really brilliant engineers who, man, they got to risk outcomes or risk analysis far quicker than I did. Like, oh, well, this, this, and this can happen. So I think it's more about uh, the, the mindset, but and I've also run into security engineers who are, who are exactly the same way, who, you know, never touched a piece of code, but, you know, they looked, they worked in labs, they looked at volume scanners, they looked at net scanners, they said, oh, well, it always happens this way. And my question always goes into like, well, how do you know? Like, you know, did you do any analysis? A real good for, for example, and just circling back to your question, you know, I, I spoke to a person about uh, risk. And so, you know, one of the things I always like to dig into is, is why, you know, I don't know if you're very, really, I'm going to put my, my nerve hat back on. Okay. <laughs> it's going to be really corny. But if you ever right. watch The Matrix 2 with the Merovingian, he says, you know, what is your why, right? So whenever I get into, because I passionately believe that GRC provides companies, what is the why behind security and, um, and risk helps, uh, you know, push them on that, that, I, that ideology. And so when I dig into uh, the coding, I'm not the coding, but the interviewing, the, the risk technical skills, I always ask, well, why did you do it that way? Mm-hmm. And so, and if they can answer that question, you know, to some degree of assurance beyond that, you know, this was set up before I got here, and then we can have a real conversation about risk because, you know, I spoke to this one person and uh, when I just asked them, I said, well, what was your risk methodology based off of? And they said, oh, it was based off of uh, the nesting hydrodad, the nesting hydrodad dirty. And I said, okay, are you sure? And it was like, well, it had been verified by auditors and signed off by manager. I said, okay, but are you sure? And he was like, yeah, with some degree of assurance. I said, well, did you read the document? <laughs> he said, no. I said, so you relied on someone else to tell you that it was good. And he was like, right. Yeah. I said, well, isn't there a risk in that? Because what if they're all wrong? Right. Right. So, you know, sometimes you have operational bias or leadership right. bias. The leader must be right. You know, so I'm just starting to rely on that. So just looking at that is a big tell for me. Like, how, how far down the risk rabbit hole is a person willing to go 
to sure. make sure that they not only understand the methodology, that they can improve upon it and or implement it in a vastly different way than initially thought of, which is what we have to do with um, blockchain. Right. So interesting. Yeah. So it's almost like the difference between people who do their own taxes or people who buy some software and say they do their own taxes, but really they don't really do their own taxes. They're trusting that whoever software they're using is doing their taxes. Exactly. Huh. Okay. So again, this may be unique to your function to chainalysis is risk, right. but what do you see as the biggest threats of the future right now? Definitely. I, and it's a combination that if AI in quantum, the advent of quantum computing wasn't so close. We would, you know, it'd be one of those 20, 30 years because there would be no way that you can get the AI into a chipset that's small to operate functionality for individual user. Mm-hmm. But when you look at quantum computing and the processing power that you can uh, extract from that and look at what AI can do with sufficient processing power, it becomes very, very scary. So that would be the biggest threat. And uh, one of the things that people are beginning to realize that, you know, for every right now is on average, what I've seen is about every $1,000 that uh, your adversary spends, you have to spend about 100 grand to stop that person from doing something malicious, right? So mm-hmm. you, know, you can, there's certain, um, you know, ethical hacking tools that you can just download and that, you know, on a $500 laptop now, right? So, you know, and you can go and just begin to do network permit scanning, scoping, seeing where, you know, the code's busted. You know, it's not very difficult to do. Right. So in order to defeat that, you have to have a team of people know what to look for. You have to look set of firewalls, SIM uh, tools, network, uh, you know, uh, not network, but through the detection system, the antivirus. So you think about all that. So now with the, uh, the AI, you know, on a lot of times, right, and, you know, technology becomes uh, cheaper. So, you know, if you think 10 mm-hmm. years out, you know, with AI setting up a model is a hundred, is a million. In about 10 years, it could be a hundred thousand. And now you have to think about, you know, defeating something that's so quick that, you know, human beings can't keep up with it and they're using analogies and um, iterative decision-making. You know, they can look at your social media profile, look at your type of typical behavior. So all this stuff becomes these inflection points to make this decision-making. So that's the thing that keeps me up at night the most. Sure. Yeah. No, I'm old enough to remember life before AI, you know, and uh, when it was just a science fiction topic. And to see how quickly it has come about, and then I still have to confess, I don't see great utility in it for myself. I don't see the world yet through some lens where I say, oh, this needs some AI put on it. This isn't, I'm not there yet. But I have already met people who, when I said that, they couldn't believe that it had just come out of my mouth. And they said, well, you don't see this, you don't see that. And one of the things that I hadn't really considered was this idea of AI penetration testing, where yeah. you say you teach it, I mean, to put it in like martial arts terms, right? You can teach AI every form of combat and then expose it to an adversary. Whereas uh, normally someone has to learn a little bit, lose a little bit, win a little bit, lose a little bit, and eventually they become a threat, right? You can basically teach AI to be an adversary in a complete vacuum because you just need to give it data. It just doesn't have to quote unquote learn anything. It just has to know it. And you got to plug in how to know it. The only saving thing to that stuff, I think at the moment, is that it is, while it does create outcomes so fast, I have definitely seen that it also makes mistakes that fast. And one thing that I think AI doesn't have yet 
is a lot of scrutiny placed against it. So people right. are just assuming what comes out of it is valuable or correct or smart or faster or some type of beneficial adjective, you know, when in actuality, maybe it is, maybe it's not. So we'll see how all that goes. But I definitely saw like the writing attack, like the social engineering angle on AI, like oh, yeah. that, wow, yikes, and can pretend to be somebody else while it's talking to you, you could say like, pretend, send this person a letter and pretend it's from a third person. And AI says, okay, give me a minute and then goes and gets it. And the one that GPT that I, that I've played with, from what I understand, isn't even full resourced and it's running on like old data. Like it didn't know anything about me. I asked it about me, which is, I'm glad to know I'm not famous enough for AI to be concerned with yet. But it knew a lot about all kinds of other people, though. Like I could, I asked it about former presidents and it went right into here's all the detail. And now, like I said, I didn't go fact check at all, but I would imagine AI is subject to being, you know, the poison well, if you will, just tell what a lie and that lie will, can live on, you know. So, but it's interesting that you see that as the risk. Now, obviously, quantum computing has a huge risk component to blockchain in particular, because that's, you know, one of the weakest factors to it. Let's call it weak, for lack of a better word. But do you see AI also being problematic specifically to blockchain? Or do you see the computational capability to be the real threat there? the computational capability as well as uh, using. So it's a factor of computational ability and then fully resourcing AI toolkit. And mm -hmm. the combination of those two being widely available to the public, you know, allows very rapid hacking and battling the blockchain, but also uh, network perimeters, you know. I mean, it's right. moving at the, you know, beyond the speed of thought at this, at this point, you know. Right. So, um, and then in, turn, in order to, you know, and it becomes like this arms race where, you know, the adversaries have, you know, eat, um, this AI and you have to have your AI that's, you know, combating it and, and, you know, you're just going back and forth. So, you know, right. really, yeah, almost like the, the space age of, of uh, this technological uh, digital warfare that's, that's currently going on now, kind of like, uh, you know, when Isaac Asimov, when he, when he did his foundation series where it just keeps on getting more and more advanced until you hit this medium where it all kinds of ends out, uh, ends out. But I think the biggest thing is going to come out. Uh, I believe the biggest thing is going to come out is that the scrutiny uh, will happen after the risk is realized. Right. Yeah. Because in it will be because our feet are going to be wet and the boat's already sinking. And well, if someone's exactly. going to say, oh, what's going on? I thought, oh, we're sinking. Right. Uh, yeah. No, I, I suspect that is the case. I, I believe that we still blindly trust technology culturally. In particular, right. Western society, we we trust it just implicitly for whatever reason. I don't know why that is. So yeah. <laughs> five years from now, given, you know, all that we've teed up here. Sure. How do you think cyber risk management will be affected and change given these futures? Well, let's talk about the last five years, right? So we went from cyber risk management almost being non non-existent as a phrase, <laughs> right? So it was right. a, how vulnerable are we to, oh, crap. You know, not only is our cyber data a threat to, you know, what about the information that's, you know, plain, uh, you know, traditional, you know, paper and pictures, you know, how, how we secure that. And this happened very, very quickly, mind you. Like, so you went from, you know, very nascent, almost five years ago, information security team for very little risk modeling or risk uh, analysis. And I think if we fast forward five years, I think that IT risk will continue to grow into its own domain. 
I think that more and more efforts are going to go into it to understand it and promote it. I think that corporations that, you know, become these mavens or these, these bastions of the, of the front line that say, okay, I'm going to begin to make my decisions from a risk-based analysis to, you know, capitalize on my own return on security investment and really understand the risk model, uh, is, are going to come out on top because they'll understand that change. You know, you can't just throw this templatized, you know, format because the industries that we exist, the, the macro and micro networks that we're existing in, our threat adversaries are all going to become very, very different. And we're seeing that now. You know, the people who are targeting banks and the people who are targeting consumers are not the same anymore. Right. You know, unless you, you know, hire these mercenary hackers, which is, you know, understandable that, you know, people will do that. But, um, you know, it won't be the same. So I think that that cyber risk uh, will continue to grow into its own domain. I think that the, technological skill set, I think that they're going to begin to split out the disparity and the job skills that, you know, right now it's all kind of bundled into like information security, cybersecurity professionals. And I think that it's going to be swell off and saying, okay, this is a viable job for people, cyber risk analysts um, or, you know, cyber risk analysts, information security analysts, and that it's going to continue to grow because there's, there's, a, there's a huge uh, deficit, this skill set out there in you know, even, you know, getting people to the, the place where you can be valuable to the company is, can be six months to a year, unless you have that deep mm-hmm. knowledge. And there's so many, if you look at just the job boards today, there's so many jobs where people just want someone who can go in and say, this is my compliance program. This is where I want to go. I need you to sit down and give me a, a viable risk at, uh, analytics as well as um, your risk model. They show me how you came up with it. And mm-hmm. you go sit in front of CEOs, CROs, chief revenue officers, and the financial the finance, uh, chief uh, financial officers who, you know, a lot of our risk modeling is based off of. So, no, the very, yeah. sorry, I apologize, but yes. Um, no, no, that's the nitty gritty, right? That's the whole, that's the gem, right? That's uh, yeah. that experience. You have that perspective. So, you know, not to put words in your mouth, but that makes it sound like a little bit like you're saying you still feel that a lot of people are just checking the box, that they're saying, well, I did what I was supposed to do. I met the compliance. Is our approach able to do this? And they still are kind of, for lack of a better word, passing the buck on the piece. Like they're looking for that person who can just come in and say, with some confidence, this is what I think what our plan here is going to work. I think it's going to cover our needs. And then they all rest easy knowing, okay, well, now we have this guy to blame. Uh, <laughs> you know, but because when you think of typical risk, in particular appetite of risk, it's we get all the leadership together. One leader explains to the other leaders in a language they all understand. So everybody understands what's going on, like, you know, whether or not it's your part of the ship to take care of. You still need to know what's going on. And then you share in the decision. You know, obviously, everybody is uniquely talented and they all have maybe their own uh, remit or their own views. Uh, but at the end of the day, there is only one ship and everybody's input, you know, does end up kind of mattering at that level. And sorry, this is not my turn to go on a on a long uh, tangent, but um <laughs> But that, I think, when you have the single person who's expected to kind of get it right, quote unquote, right. I think that sounds like a risk all on its own. Yeah, I, you know, I totally agree with you. And I think that it's a combination now. I think it may be 30, 70 where people are saying, okay, well, this is not your responsible. Go take it, go do it. And I think that the appetite for actually understanding it is increasing based on, you know, you look at a lot of the uh, the roles and and. and uh, options that are out there for, for risk uh, risk uh, professionals. I think, um, you know, what's going on is that it's one of those things I don't know what I don't know. 
And as people begin to dig into it and they see the valuable insight that they can glean from it, then it becomes, you know, incredibly valuable to them. But until they, you know, say, okay, make concerted efforts. And I, I really want to understand my technological risk and my environment and where it's becoming from. How to address it. I think that that is going to be the biggest turning point. What's going to push people to get there? Uh, it depends on the industry. It depends on uh, where the what um, the adversaries, and it depends on you know what it is that they're trying to get out of it. But I think I'm beginning to see the paradigm really shift from okay, let's just do this blanket thing to we really need to understand this so that we can talk to our investors and our stakeholders and say this is the reason why we make this move. Yeah. Well, let's hope because that type of outcome requires critical thinking, requires a critical process. <laughs> uh, I mean, really, and I, that that alone, I think, would be a huge benefit. I see all kinds of security programs where they're not critically thinking of the steps. They are just checking boxes. So. Right. No, you're, you're a thousand percent right about that. A thousand percent right about that. And it's it, so, you know, it's, it's one of those things where people can start asking those tough questions and they start asking those risk-based questions that, you know, as it becomes the, the flavor or the, the, uh, the coffee of the month, then, you know, it begins to get driven. And when they see like really good programs and they start seeing not so great programs, they say, what did you do different? They say, well, we started off with the risk analysis. Yeah. Yeah. Well, let's hope, like I said. So I like to close up things typically with uh, a final question of advice that you would give to others. So it could be, you know, a message to yourself in the past. It could be a message to, you know, listeners that are just finding themselves in this position. Uh, But what are three pieces of actionable advice that you would give to security practitioners listening in? Three pieces of actionable advice is question yourself daily. Always ask yourself, how do I know what I know? And what was true yesterday isn't necessarily true today. Mm-hmm. Wow. That would save you a lot. The other piece is, is to become a, um, learn to become a salesperson for security and, and risk and risk management. I think a lot of times that, you know, we, we say, okay, we're doing this because we know it's the right thing to do, but necessarily like, you know, that sales technique that goes behind, you know, getting the buy-in from the organization is just not there because sometimes we're just talking over. So. So just really, uh, you know, kind of understanding organizational flavor and learning that organizational cadence and, you know, being able to talk the language of the broader organization because mm-hmm. it's like, you know, if, if we're, you know, in the United Federation of Planets, so I'll just stay with the Star, Star Trek, you know, and, and, <laughs> and, uh, you have, and, and the risk professionals are, or IT is the board. And then we're now, you know, the, uh, or IT is the, Vulcan, then, you know, you have to speak Vulcan and then we're the board, you know, we're speaking this digital language, but we understand the Vulcan in English, but it doesn't necessarily really translate. Mm-hmm. And then the third thing I would do is, you know, challenge yourself with a creative activity or, you know, something that's so clearly out of the box that it just stretches your mind to grow. I think that that uh, will, you know, definitely help, you know, understand the scariness of the people that you're trying to influence where people can't necessarily sit there in that meeting where you're explaining something that they can't really say, that. well, I have no idea what you're talking about, uh, <laughs> right? But when you try something new as often as you can, then you feel that sense of scary or that sense of foreboding where you're like, oh, wow, like something is going on. It doesn't be so great. I don't quite understand what's going on, but how do I translate it? And then you begin to make that reach to the people that you're trying to, you know, necessarily protect. Sure. Yeah, you know, that sales approach, that sales mentality is something that took me a long time to realize in my career. 
because it doesn't matter what you know if you don't have buy-in from other people. I mean, unless it's your company, it's unlikely that you're going to get much done unless somebody else supports the idea. And uh, there's a book, uh, it's called Getting to Yes. Uh, yes. I forget the guys who uh, wrote it, but uh, there's another one called Getting Past No. Uh, that's a follow-up right. to it. But I think it's a Harvard Business School book. Like I said, I'm, I'm sure there's a million people listening right now who would uh, correct me and tell me the guy's name right away. But, uh, but anyway, <laughs> I read that book years ago and it was like I read it in two flights. Like right. it was not a heavy read at all, it, but it was very fundamentally changing for me. Like I realized that being right is not the same as being accurate and that right. you can be accurate all day long and still be wrong if you're standing there by yourself. That's, exactly. you know, then you're not in business and you're, then you're wrong. Um, exactly. So, another good one is who moved my jeans. Okay. Um, yeah, that, that, that'd be another good one for people to, because even sometimes you look at, um, that are, Threat profiles that threat monitoring sometimes happens so quickly mm-hmm. that we be aware and adapt and then convince everybody else to come along with us. Like, right. If Jesus moved, you know, we got to move and, you know, we have to do the thing that, you know, there's nobody's right. fault, but, you know, let's, let's continue to move. So that's, that was the, the whole, uh, after World War One, that was the whole French defense strategy was to dig a line, giant trench that uh, would protect them from attack. And then they just went a different direction. <laughs> it didn't go through the thing and nobody, nobody. And they all just stood there asking, well, why aren't they charging us where they said, where we told them to come, you know, charge us at. It's yeah. uh, it's funny. Yeah. Wh- who moved my cheese? Yeah, I'll have to uh, take a look. I have heard of that book, but it's not one that I've read. So I'll take a look at that. So anyway, uh, Koja, this is, uh, unfortunately, this is all the time we have for today. If there are folks who want to keep in touch with you, uh, see your postings, you know, see what you're up to, do you have social media or, or, you know, what's the best way for folks to get in touch with you? So, yeah, I, I um, so I'm, I'm on LinkedIn, you know, first name, last name at LinkedIn. I'm the only one there. So uh, mm-hmm. if you send me a request, be more than happy to connect, or, you know, and chat about it. I think that's how you guys may have found me. So, yeah, you know. yeah. No, it's excellent. And that's K-O-D-J-O, Hogan, for the folks listening in. Excellent. Well, Kojo, thank you so much uh, for taking the time out uh, to chat with us today. Uh, It's always interesting and enlightening for me uh, when I meet someone who, like I said, has come from a different direction. And yet here we are in the same spot. So that's always very enlightening. So I very much appreciate your uh, speaking with us today and wish you well. Thanks very much. Thank you, David. It's been a great chat with you. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Future of Cyber Risk podcast brought to you by Team Cymru. For the latest episodes, please visit team-cymru.com or search Future of Cyber Risk on your podcast platform of choice. Thanks, and we'll catch you on the next episode.